Grab your Bibles and open them to Psalm chapter 32. Psalm chapter 32 tonight. Um, our, our selection, um, the chapters for this week are chapters 31 through 35. I decided in my reading of these five chapters that 32 deserves our attention. So we'll just cover chapter 32. And that may put a leash on me too, so we don't go too long. This may be a good thing. Um, let me give you guys a review before diving into Psalm 32. Um, give you guys the shape of the Psalter. The Psalter, the book of Psalms, is five books. And the intention of making it in five books was to make it parallel the Pentateuch, the first five chapters of the Bible, the Jewish law. And so there's supposed to be this correlation between one's study of law, Torah, God's word, and worship. So the psalms and the prayers and the songs are worthless if there is no interaction in Torah, if there's no study of God's laws and instructions and keeping them. So the five-book structure shows us that worship without obedience to God's law is absolutely worthless. Amen. So, in book one of the Psalter, we find David in literally every single chapter. Um, The little subtitles of the chapters give us a hint about the book's theme and its message. For example, if you go to Psalm, well, we're in Psalm 32, so you see in Psalm 32 it says, A Maskell of David. Those are the subtitles. Um, They are believed... In, in one way, we consider them inspired. They were inserted in the canon at some point in time. And so by looking at those, we can get an idea of the Psalms. So what I'm saying is in book one, David is mentioned in every single chapter but one or two. And then you get to book number two and you start to see the sons of Asaph. You see Solomon and some David. And then you get to book three and you find virtually no David. It, he may be mentioned once or twice. And then by book four, you see Moses mentioned a couple times, and still David is very minimal on the scene. And then you get to book five, and the whole book changes, because David reappears on the scene in many of the Psalms. So, what scholars have done in looking at these titles of the Psalms is they found the five books show the story and history of Israel. And it's actually a book of hope. It's a book looking for the coming Messiah to restore Israel to their rightful place with God. So, in book one, you see a lot of themes of struggle. It's, it's the picture of David in his rise to the throne. He did not have an easy rise to the throne. He was anointed, and the guy above him hated him. Saul by name, tried to kill him. And so we see a lot of David's struggle up to the throne. Then in book two, it's, it's the, the section of David's reign. And so you see um, everyone who's related to David's reign. The sons of Asaph were priests in the temple. And you see Solomon, his son, and you see David himself. Then by book three, the entire Psalter changes tones. You hit the minor key of the song. And it opens up with saying, God, what have you done to us? Why have you forgotten us? Because that's reflecting the part when Israel's king was kicked off the throne. The dynasty was snapped. Babylon came and seized Judah and and put them up into exile and captivity. But then book four opens up with Moses. 
And Moses is mentioned quite a bit in book four. Why? Because as Moses was the one who led Israel out of Egypt into the promised land, book four is showing God's going to take them out of Babylon and back into the promised land. He's going to restore them. So then book five closes the Psalter with triumph. There's, there's the songs of ascent, which are the songs that the Jews would sing as they go celebrate feasts up at Jerusalem. And so that's the idea in book five of the Psalms of ascent is we're going back to Jerusalem. God is bringing his people back. He's restoring us. And then you have the Hallel Psalms and it's just the praise, praise, praise be to God. And then you have one of the imprecatory psalms. I believe it's Psalm, um, oh boy, one of the imprecatory psalms towards the end. It's, it says that um, the, the psalmist is crying that, that Israelites would take the heads of Babylon babies and smash their heads into the pavement. And, and when it's a Christian, you're like, wow, God, why'd you let that one slip in the Bible? But the picture is going back to the first gospel mentioned in Genesis 3.15. And that was where sin entered the world. And God said, yeah, sin's here, but I've got a plan to overcome it and restore all of humanity to myself. So this is what's going to happen Adam and Eve and serpent. The seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And so when David starts talking about smashing babies' heads into skulls, he's talking about taking the enemies of God and triumphing over them in biblical language from Genesis 3.15. And right after that, the question is kind of like, well, okay, who's going to be the one to smash the enemy's skull? Who's going to bring victory? The very next psalm is the psalm of David. And the next one, and the next one, until the book closes out with a bunch of praise, and you get the sense that God's in control of his story, and everything's going to be okay. He's going to win. So that's what the Psalter shows us in its totality. Now, we're still in book one, chapters 31 through 35. We will look at chapter 32. So let's do this. We'll read it, we'll pray, and we will get into a message about confession and the suffocation of joy. Psalm 32, a mascal of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. But I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like the horse or the mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. 
Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would search our hearts tonight. Use your word tonight as a two-edged sword to penetrate and to come into our hearts, Father, and search out what does not belong and search out where we ought to be made right. Father, I ask that your spirit comes and that your spirit, the spirit who gives life, would give life tonight. Raise the dead and awaken the slumberer. Father, as we took communion a few minutes ago, we understand that what those elements represent is our very identity. And we would not be here without your great forgiving, gracious sacrifice. So we cling to that tonight and we cast our joy upon the promise that our sins can be forgiven. So Lord, thank you. And again, I ask, search our hearts and see if there's any wicked way. In Jesus' name, we ask. Amen. The subject of confession has waned considerably in the church. Um, I have not been grown up with a lot of teaching on confession. And I think the reason may be because we're scared of the word because of many strange ideas that come into our heads that originated from other religious circles. Confession needs not to be a scary topic. It is something that ought to be experienced on a daily basis between a gracious, merciful God and pathetic, wicked sinners who are completely at his mercy. And it's my proposition tonight as I look at this psalm that confessed sin secures joy in the believer's relationship with God. My sin confessed off of my heart, off of my mind, and laid out in open honesty before God secures joy in my relationship with Him. And I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to come to this when you look at verses 1 and 2 particularly. Blessed, or a literal wording would be happy. (laughs) Happy! Joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. And if that's not enough, the psalmist wants to return to that theme at the end of the psalm in verse 11, where he says, Be glad, command, in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Because when, when sin that has intruded into our lives and hearts is cast before a gracious, forgiving God, that is joyful. That is happiness. And that's where we're meant to be. 
But it can also logically be concluded that if confessed sin brings joy, secures that joy in God, then the opposite is true. That my unconfessed sin suffocates my joy in God. Now, since there's this relationship, at least in this psalm, between my confession of sin and my joy in Christ, I think it's going to be important that we look at the relationship here between confession and sin and joy and Christ. So, where I want to take us here is we'll look first at verse 5, because we need to, we need to clarify what, what does the psalmist mean by confession. And so we'll see that there's comfort in confessing. This isn't some freaky thing where you have to come to some man behind a veil and admit all your dark closet skeletons and things. This is, there's comfort in this confession. And then we'll jump back up to verses 3 and 4 and look at the crisis of unconfessing. So comfort and confessing, crisis and unconfessing. And we'll close with the psalmist in verses 6 through the rest where he gives... An exhortation for confession. He, he, at the end, half the psalm is in pleading, Come, O godly ones, come and confess your sin and experience what I'm experiencing here. So, that's where we're going to go. So, confession. The comfort of confessed sin. Um, the comfort comes because there's a lot of joy in my confession of sin. And... It works in two ways. It comes in my action of confession. And as I act in confession, then God reacts in restoration. So there's my proper action, and then there's his promised reaction. We'll get both of those components here in verse 5. And we're going to see that the reason my joy can be suffocated by unconfessed sin is because joy is like a breathing living creature within us <laughs> as it does come from the Holy Spirit but you see anything breathing needs to inhale and exhale so what we're going to see here is that God's forgiveness is inhaled and my confession is the exhaling and many of us sin and just hold our breath and hope that God doesn't know <laughs> and that we don't have to mention it and we run around with our faces turning blue and never get to inhale his forgiveness. So the joy is completely dependent upon our confession of sin so that we can exhale and receive God's gracious, joyful, joy-infusing forgiveness. So... Here's what happens. God confronts you with sin. Confession is my proper action when he confronts me with sin. And that's what it is. So here he comes. We ask you, search my heart, O God. And he does. And there it is. You're confronted with it. What is your action? For the psalmist, it's confession. So here we are in verse 5, and he says... I acknowledged my sin to you, or I made it known, I, I revealed it, I uncovered it, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my sin to the Lord, and 
And he says, God, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So confession is this this, this proper action. When God confronts you with sin, it's that action of, all right, I'm going to be honest and humble here. I'm going to have honest humility and just, just let it out and say, okay, God, you got me. This, yes, that's what I did. And I'm in full agreement with you that this is wrong. Sometimes our confession is not honest. We don't completely tell him the full story. Or it's not humble. We kind of belittle what we've done. Or we're very vague. But doesn't God know? Yeah. That's why I should be honest. He knows. But then why should I tell him? Because I believe that we need to know. We need to hear ourselves admit how wretched we are and have been. And to finally come to that place where we can say, God, you're not the jerk in the sky holding a standard over me. I see that your way's better. And after I've sinned, I, I admit that. I realize that I want your way and not my way. Because I, I've, I've tasted of both, and I see that your way is a much better cup to drink. Not my cup of slime. So, this is why we need to be honest and humble, and that's, I think verse 5 is the key there. I acknowledged, I, I, I just made it known. And the, the subline, which reiterates the first line, it says, I did not cover my iniquity. So it's like we're, we naturally want to cover it, but we just take the blanket off, say, here it is, I'm naked and open. If you look at verse, verse 2, the last half, it says, In whose spirit there is no deceit. That's a man who's confessed. There's no deceit. There's no, there's no trying to belittle what you've done. Yeah, God, I, I did lie, but you would... I mean, don't you understand the situation I was in? Listen. It doesn't matter if you did that or not. You're still wretched and deserving hell as you are. So just go ahead and, yeah, admit that you're the lowest slime on this earth. And that without God's grace picking you up, you deserve nothing. It's as John Piper said one time I was at a conference and the first thing he said when he got up there was, it's a good day today. You know, you're waiting for, okay, who won in the game today? Or is it California weather? You're, you're glad to be out of Minnesota or whatever. And, and he said, it's a good day today. I did not wake up in hell. And that just, that just stunned me. as a, It stunned me. And I realized the truth of that statement. I should wake up in hell. Why shouldn't I? I have rebelled against the king of the universe. That's called treason. You read your history books, they hang people that commit treason. Or shoot them, depending on your era. Or they crucify them. So... Our confession needs not to be belittled. There's no reason to belittle it. You can't be worse than you are. So uncover. And the beauty of this is what God promises. But before we get to that promise, you have to realize that this isn't just, okay, I got me and just kind of reluctantly. This is, this is openness. It's the opposite of Adam and Eve. It's the stripping of your soul, and it's okay with being, if, if you pardon the, it, the image, it's okay being naked before God. 
uncovered. Because Adam and Eve weren't okay with that. When they sinned, they, they sewed fig leaves and covered their nakedness, which the nakedness represented the evidence of their sin. And they covered it up. You can't see it, God. I don't know I'm naked. I feel fine. They hid behind the trees. And finally, okay, okay, now we're confronted with God's here now. Okay, I should probably fess up. Oh, yeah, I, we did it, God. We did it. But you, you kind of need to be in our shoes to understand exactly how this went down. You see, the woman, and then the woman says, the serpent, and then the serpent says, hey, you made me this way, and all these things, and all these excuses. That's not confession. You see... If we realize what goes on when God confronts us with sin, it would be easier for us to open up. He's not an executioner with drawn sword saying, did you do it or not? He's a surgeon with a scalpel asking, did you want help or not? As Jesus said in Mark 2.17, those who are well have no need of a doctor, but those who are sick... I came not to call the righteous, the well, but the sinners, the sick. That's what I came here for, is those who realize that they have a disease within them and they need my help. And I've learned through my life that God more readily embraces me in my sin than he does in my righteousness. Because when I come to him knowing that I need his mercy, I'm at that place where I can glorify him by receiving his exalted work. He can become who he's meant to be, the doctor. And I'm just the one who's going to glorify him as I'm fixed. So when he confronts us, we can become more open, realizing what he's trying to do. Not until we are real about sin can he heal us again. I have to be real if he's going to heal. So when God confronts us, our proper action is confession. And then when we confess God's promised reaction (laughs) is restoration. It's forgiveness. And that's promised. So you don't have to come wondering, oh great, am I going to be executed? No, you're not going to be executed. You've exhaled. You, you, you've, done the, you've been holding your breath with your sin. Like, and now you just let out, God, I did it, I did it. I did it. And all details out, and I'm so sorry. <sighs> Felt good. And now it's time to inhale. He's going to give you his forgiveness. He's going to restore you. He's going, grace is going to flood into you, and joy will come. So at the last part of verse 5, It says, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And here it is. The reaction, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. We hear it so often. It's become so part of our vernacular as Christians. He forgave my sin. It's like, yeah, duh. But consider what the psalmist could have said. He could have said, I confess my sin and you aggressively bartered with me about how to make this right. So, little sinner, if you you treasure your life, I want you to give five hours of community service, tithe 20% this week, 
and you know, go out. I want you to give your entire day, just take work off and get money and just help this person. And you're like, okay, we'll, we'll, but can it, maybe that last one's a little too hard, God? Can we? And that could happen. That's how we often treat people, try to barter with them. It's not what he said. Neither did he say, I confess my sin and you severely punished me for my iniquity. Because God could do that. He should. But he didn't. Neither did he say, I, I confess my sin and you eternally banished me from your presence. Because of my iniquity. Forever. Now, it would be just of God to do. But that's not what the psalmist experienced. He said the beautiful words, I confess my sin, and you forgave me the iniquity of my sin. You removed it and took it away. If we don't confess, what will usually happen is we will begin to imagine those things that God could have said. We begin to imagine those as true. For example... If I sin and I don't just come clean with God, then I begin to imagine that God can make this work if I barter with him. So I begin to feel like I'm doing better because I am praying more. Or I haven't, I, will, I promise I'll never use bad language again this week, God. I'll make it good. We, we usually try to restore it on our end. But that doesn't work. Or... We begin to look at life through a cause and effect type of lens. Because, of course, God is seeking to punish us. So if I don't confess, I usually look at life. And and if some bad circumstance happens, I begin to think, Oh, God brought this because of what I did. I deserve it. He's punishing me. But we know in the book of Job that that's not the way that God works. Or when I don't confess, I begin to see life. um, And I begin to avoid direct fellowship with God. Because I think that he's angry at me. So I just kind of, you know, I'll, I'll pray, I'll do my devotions, I'll go to church, and I'll do whatever means it takes, as long as I don't have that direct God moment, and I just say, okay, I did my duty, and I'm out of here. Just praying for the sake to pray, not praying for the sake of hearing God and expressing our worship and love for him. So that's, the psalmist said, I confess, and I didn't experience these things, but if we don't confess, we're going to feel like these things are true. That's why it's important just to get to the truth of who God is. To exhale that we can inhale who he is. Forgiveness and grace. And joy comes with that. So that's our joy. Um, 1 John 1.9. Mike took all my notes for the communion thing. So he read all my passages. Um, 1 John 1.9. The beautiful promise of John. That if we confess our sins. Then he is faithful. Meaning he always will. And just, meaning it is an absolutely fair bargain for him to forgive me of all my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And it's fair because of Jesus. So we can have confidence as we go to confession that we have an advocate, a friend, a defense attorney (laughs) saying, this is fair, God, this is fair that we forgive him and cleanse us, or cleanse him from all unrighteousness. So, joy is, it, it needs to breathe. It needs, it needs the exhale of confession. It needs the inhale of forgiveness. And we can 
triumphantly shout verses 1, 2, and 11. Oh, happy am I that I'm forgiven. And, and, and be glad, old church, and shout for joy. It's why we're here. We have salvation. But here is the crisis of unconfessed sin. If confession is my exhaling and, and the inhaling of his forgiveness, then unconfessed sin is my lack of exhaling. I'm holding my breath. I'm saying I'm not going to mention this. And we're turning blue in the face. And this is a crisis. And the psalmist tried this. And he's, he wants to steer our attention to the fact that this is stupid. So don't, don't do it. Verse 3. For when I was silent, the point is when I did not confess my sin, my bones wasted away. Now, I've never broken a bone, but I understand it's painful. Amen, brother. (laughs) I can just imagine what your bones wasting away would feel like. Through my groaning all day long. Groaning is literally roaring. It's used in other passages that talk about lions. So he's silent, but he's roaring. What's going on? Inside there's conflict. He's not confessing to God, but inside there's this war. There's this lion's roar of, I'm not happy. (laughs) Things are the way they're supposed to be. And verse 4, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So, unconfessed sin slowly saps us of strength. And the psalmist experienced this. And that's where he says, verse 3, my bones wasted away. Verse 4, my strength was dried up. Bones are considered, in, in this time period, in the, in the Hebrew thought of mind, the bone was considered the strongest part of the human body. And with that, because it's, it's also the most inside part of you, um, they would often use bones to express their deep feelings and um, affections. So often you see the phrase in the Bible, but you are my kindred, my blood and my bone, and things like that. So it, it deals with strength and, and like the essence of your feelings. And so here he's saying, my bones are wasting away. So all of that strength and all of that, that feeling of who I am, it's just, it's, it's deteriorating, it's rotting. And then verse 4, I, the, the way that verse 4 literally reads where it, it talks about um, my strength was dried up by the heat of summer. Literally, it's my juice was dried up by the drought of summer. Or, as Robert Alter's translation of the Psalms put it, my sap turned into summer dust. That's, that's, a, that's a good picture. And the short of this is that the psalmist's physical and his emotional strength, his joy, is completely gone. It is drying up. It's rotting from the inside out. Because there is sin... And rather than confronting and getting with God and saying, God, take this away... I I shouldn't have done this. He just, nothing happened. And it's because of that. There's reasons for it. And just moves on. And there was no joy in the psalmist's life. It sapped him of all of his strength. Because that's what sin does. Sin is like a leech 
or like a parasite or in the mainstream vernacular. It's like a vampire. It latches on to us and it sucks life out of us. It, it gets its life from us. C.S. Lewis put this very creatively in a book called The Screw Tape Letters where there's correspondence between a senior demon and a junior demon, and he's trying to train them how to trip Christians up. This is, what he, this is what the demon tells the other demon about their job in the lives of humans. This is how he describes humans. He says, um, the demon says, To us, a human is primarily our food. Our aim is the absorption of the human's will into our will. The increase of our own area of selfhood at the human's expense. So in other words, as we get the human to sin and to go do what our will is, he is going to be absorbed into us. And I know this is fiction, but it's a very creative way of putting the picture of what sin does to us. It, it just like the vampire just comes and sucks the life out of you. Or just like a little parasite just riding along with you and you don't know that you're getting weaker and weaker and your emotions are out of control and out of check and you have no joy in Christ. So, that's where we need to inhale and exhale. Confess and receive forgiveness. So now let's get to the exhortation. Confession secures our joy. Unconfession suffocates our joy, we turn blue in the face, and we wonder why we're getting all weak and dizzy and can't stand life and don't even want to be with God anymore. Confession secures our joy. And the psalmist wants to show us three ways that confession secures our joy. The first is in verse 6. When we confess our sin, God tames the roaring beast of conflict. Inside of you, there's that roaring beast of conflict. And when you confess, God comes in with a whip and, and just, just trains that roaring beast and says, Joy, be there now. And verse 6 says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you in a time when you may be found. Therefore is the, really the word I'm looking at. Because therefore is there at the conclusion of the psalmist's experience. Namely, I was sinning. I held it in, I didn't confess, and I felt miserable. There was this roaring beast within me, just sucking all the life out of me. But then I confessed, and I found joy. Therefore, everybody join me in the activity of confession. So when we confess our sin, God wants to come in and take that whip and drive that roaring beast out of you. Take that conflict away and bring peace and joy in its place so that we can conclude verse 11 with the psalmist that we would be glad in the Lord and rejoice and shout for joy because we're upright in heart. Number two, in confession, God's faithfulness to forgive us that's what we experience in confession. We experience His faithfulness to forgive us. Builds our confidence that He will always be in the future and in the present there for us. To be our help. If you look at verse 6 and 7, the last part of verse 6. He says, surely in the rush of great waters, 
they will not reach him. The rush of great waters is poetic language for any bad circumstance that can happen to you. It's just some trying, hard, difficult experience. So in that hard experience, it will not reach me because, in verse 7, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble, from the great waters. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. That's, that's who God is. And in confession, it builds our confidence that he is that joy-restoring God. Because if God will be our help and forgive us when we sin, imagine how much more he will be there when we are innocently in trouble. If he's there to help us when we're guilty, then you can count on him when you're innocent and in a circumstantial mess. That builds me confidence that I come as the most rebellious sinner and he treats me tenderly. So that then when other things happen, I know that he surely can help me now. So Christians who confess experience verse 7 and they realize there's no other hiding place for me but Christ. And then third, the humility of confession. Because remember, it's a humbling thing to confess. That humility submits us to Christ's counsel. And his direction. It submits us to his counsel and his direction. If you look at verse 8. It says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Now, we believe that the speaker in verse 8 is God. That God bursts into the scene and he's the one saying this. And if you have a New King James translation, that is confirmed for you by the capitalization of the pronoun my eye. You'll see that my is capitalized. The translators think that this is God speaking. So, God breaks in the scene here. And the psalmist hears his voice. I confessed, and then God breaks in and starts speaking. He starts leading. And what I realize is, golly, some of us may not have heard the voice of God or sensed the reality of his presence in our life for quite some time. He may not be leading us, or we may not even know if he's working in our lives. You haven't heard from him. Because you have unconfessed sin. God's leading you to the first step. Just pour it out to me, son. I want to infuse you with gracious, joy-infusing forgiveness. And say, no. Well, if you've not taken step one, how's he going to lead you to step two? But so as we humbly confess, we have that joy of knowing God's with us, and he's leading us, and you hear his voice. So just a suggestion, if you haven't heard from him, maybe you haven't really been straight with him. You've been hiding in the trees, sewing fig leaves together, making excuses for your behavior. But there's one more exhortation, and this one's a lot more severe. The first three help us to secure our joy in God through confession, that whole exhale, inhale, joy is living within me. But this last exhortation, I think, is a little more severe. It's not quite the joy-building exhortation. It's the, you're going to have no joy at all if you don't take this exhortation. In fact, you're not, joy is going to be the first thing from your mind if you don't take this exhortation. 
So what is this exhortation? Verse 6 says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you, here's the key, at a time when you may be found. Why at a time when God may be found? To me, this suggests that there may be a time when God may not be found. So, the time when God may be found, offer your confession then. I think the short of what he's saying is, when God confronts you with sin, don't wait. Bring confession immediately, as soon as he confronts you with it. Because waiting can be a dangerous situation, and there could be a time when he will not be found I don't mean that God will sovereignly just shut up heavens and say, too late for you, sucker. But that you can get to the point where your will wants nothing to do with confession anymore. That time, the possibility of your confession may not be around forever. Therefore, don't be like a stubborn beast. Because the window of confession may not always be open. That's, that's, that goes with verse 8 too. He says, don't be like the beast. They're stubborn. They don't understand. They need to be kicked and whipped and put a bridle and a steer. Don't be like that. When God confronts you with sin, confess it now. Because the window will not always be there. Is that true? In 1 John 1, John talks about this confession of sin and he illustrates it with light and darkness. And he talks about when you sin, you're walking in darkness. But the bridge back to the light is confession. So this is how this works. If we were to shut the lights off in here right now, it wouldn't take a lot for you guys to realize you're in the dark. Amen, brother. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure even Dr. Bravo could know that. <laughs> um, but if we dim the lights gradually, and I don't even mean over the course of tonight, that, that's kind of too noticeable, but if, if these lights are just ever so slowly dimmed over the course of a month or months, what happens? Well, you're reading your Bible and your eyes are just naturally adjusting to the changing light. You're not even consciously thinking about it. And your, your pupils grow bigger and they can absorb more light and you think you're reading great. And next thing you know, by the time you realize it's getting pretty dark in here, it's already dark in here. So when we even commit little sins like attitudes... Or little little lies. Or thoughts that we shouldn't have had. And we just let them go. You're letting the lights dim a little bit. And things are getting darker. Well, okay, fine. I'll just, you know, confess once every six months. And I'll come back to the light and everything will be good. Perhaps. But haven't you ever walked out of a movie theater out of a matinee show? You go from dark to light instantly it hurts 
And you can get to the point where you've just lived with so much unconfessed sin so long that you're used to the darkness. And to go to the light hurts. And you won't do it. It's just a guess. But maybe this is what happens to some of those who have once been amongst us and are just, they're gone now. They're, they're doing something else. They're, they're not walking with the Lord anymore. They try to hold their breath until they passed out and said, God's not very good. So I think that's why the exhortation in verse 6, when God confronts you with sin, just deal with business. Because the result's joy anyways. So it's that gradual slide. C.S. Lewis, once again, in the, seat, in the um, screw tape letters, describes it. The demons are talking again, and this is how they talk about it. All humans, at nearly all times, have some such reluctance about thinking about God. And that's true. But when thinking of God involves facing and intensifying a whole vague cloud of half-conscious guilt, this reluctance to think about God is increased tenfold. They hate every idea that suggests God, just as men hate, or just as men in financial embarrassment hate the very sight of a checkbook. And you can have that place of unconfessed sin. You may not even know exactly what it is or whatever. It's just, you haven't really been real with God a lot lately. And you're just walking with Him. And there's just kind of like this vague cloud of like, mm, I don't know if I'm right with Him. And, and there's just the thought of like, it's just kind of like, oh, I don't want to even think about it. I definitely don't want to encounter Him face on. So you're, what happens is your prayer life becomes merely a chore. The Bible reading, all, all your other spiritual disciplines become just, just doing them. No joy in them. And, and what then happens, it continues in the screw tape letters. You, the Christian, will then want your prayers to be unreal. For you will dread nothing so much as effective contact with God. You no longer need a good book. Uh, he's not talking to the demon. The demon's no longer going to need a good book which, with which the human really likes in order to keep him from his prayers or his work or his sleep. But a column, in, a column of advertisement in yesterday's paper will do just fine. You can make him waste his time not only in conversation he enjoys with people whom he likes, but also in conversations with those whom he doesn't care about with subjects that bore him. You can make him do nothing at all for long periods. You can keep him up late at night, not roistering, that's a lot of obnoxious partying, not roistering, but staring at a dead fire in a cold room. What is he saying? He's saying, you get your man to this point where he just keeps sin harbored in his heart and he doesn't confess it with God, he's going to get to this place where he doesn't want to confront God. He's going to try to avoid God. He'll keep praying, he'll keep going to church, he'll keep worshiping, keep reading his Bible, but there's never going to be real encounter because he's going to try to avoid that at all costs. He's not comfortable with that. And so no longer are you going to need to distract him from God with this really cool thing simple things, boring things in life will now distract him. Like watching a dead fire in a cold room. I think if C.S. Lewis was in our age, he would just simply say, like staring at the TV when there's nothing on. And I think 
a lot of our problem lies here. We distract ourselves with things that we really don't care about because we are avoiding direct contact with God. And the psalmist wants to say, why? You're holding your breath. You're turning purple. You look miserable. There's this roaring of conflict in you and you're not happy. (laughs) And you're not happy. Why don't you just confess and receive the forgiveness and let joy live in you again? That's his exhortation. So, while he may be found. In other words, right now, when God searches your heart and he points it out, you go. And you meet with your physician, your doctor, your father. Is it uncomfortable? A little bit, but you grow closer. Remember the benefits is joy and you start to hear his voice and you have confidence that he's always going to be with you in the future. And that roaring lion will be tamed within you. So when you guys stare at a dead fire rather than seek God, know that unconfessed sin has suffocated your joy in God. And it's time to search your heart and to have humble humility and openness with Him and get it restored. He will. He's waiting as the psalmist said, the promised response of God is, and he forgave my iniquity. So in summary, confess sin secures our joy in God. That's where you say, oh, happy am I. Knowing that I'm walking with God on good terms. I'm filled with just that reminder of what he did for me on the cross. But unconfessed sin suffocates your joy in God. And if you're not really feeling it, maybe that's where you need to look. Therefore, bring your confession as as soon as God shows it to you. Confronts you with it. Just bring it. So, Lord, I ask that you restore unto us the joy of your salvation, as David prayed elsewhere. So, Spirit of the living God, we pray you fall afresh on us, melt us, mold us, use us and fill us, to be humble, honest, open, joy-infused Christians who delight every opportunity to be with you because we're not hiding anything. So God, be merciful, tender, and gracious to us as we open our hearts to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.